Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you who happen to cross our broadcast for the first time, is our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. And that's where you come in, whether you're listening to us on our radio affiliate or podcasting us on our uh, live uh, internet broadcast. Uh, we would invite you to be a part of our journey through the Word by supplying the questions. Whether you have a question about the Bible, whether you have a question about how to apply the Bible to your life, maybe how to defend the truths we find in the Bible in this increasingly uh, skeptical culture we live in, we'd love to hear from you with those questions. Maybe you'd like to talk about the events of the day from a biblical point of view, or even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy. We are all over it each and every day, but uh, we would really love to be able to have you determine the content of the program by supplying the questions. Uh, Sean, how can people get their questions to us? Well, if you're joining us online, you can send us an email at questionsforhope at gmail.com, or you can join us on our website, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab, and you'll be sent to a portal where we will be able to engage with you face-to-face. The right side of the screen will be dedicated to comments, which hopefully will be your questions. And as long as they are sincere and relevant to the Bible, we'll be happy to answer them. Also note, we have social media platforms for now anyway. On YouTube, it's A Reason for Hope. And on Facebook, it's Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, T-U-C-S-O-N. Note those venues will function the same way as our website, but because we don't decide when or what we're allowed to say, uh, you can still find us on our website if for not aforementioned reasons, we are not broadcasting. Uh, Technical things will still go wrong, but we also want to account for human error and tyranny. So if you guys would like to join (laughs) us on the website, calvarychristianfellowship.com is where we want you to primarily meet us. Again, Watch Live is how you can access us through that venue. Okay. Well, having said that, why don't we uh, make the most important connection and uh, dedicate this time to the Lord. Did you pray for us? Yeah, absolutely. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We want to ask that you would be here as well. Fill us with your spirit and allow us to share, not just out of love for you, but for your people, not only out of love for your word, but a desire for it to be accurately represented. See this work done and allow your name to be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, starting us off, uh, we'll be waiting your questions as they will be sent in, and we appreciate your guys letting us know how you're doing as well. But uh, uh, starting off um, yesterday, uh, Bo and uh, Peter were able to graciously cover for us, but uh, we didn't get to our contradiction, so we figure you guys are probably itching for the latest bad logic given to us by atheists. This is a fun one. In the gospel accounts, apparently Judas identifying himself with a kiss or Jesus identifying himself are two contradictory events. In John 8, verses 3 through 5, Jesus identifies himself. And in Matthew 26, 47 through 49, Judas identifies Jesus with a kiss. Now, already at face value, we will go through our uh, policy in whenever you guys hear of a contradiction in the Bible in a moment. But if you just take the contradiction at face value, are these two details, as they're presented, contradictory? 
No. No. Is it possible for Judas to then do something after Jesus does something? Is there any reason for the guards going to arrest Jesus to want confirmation with their representative, not just take the word of some guy who came forward saying that he's Jesus? Is this actually what a contradiction means? The answer is no. Yeah. So whenever you hear of a contradiction... Or the long answer is no. <laughs> yeah. Whenever you hear of a contradiction in the Bible, the first thing you do is ask, do you know what a contradiction is? A contradiction is a violation of the second law of formal logic, the law of non-contradiction. In shorthand, it's A does not equal non-A. In plain English, it is two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and cancel each other out at the same time. Atheists and skeptics and objectors basically to the Bible will want to put forward this word contradiction because it sounds fancy and intellectual and intimidating as if it destroys credibility. But if right. you don't know what that word actually means, then this ultimately ends up being flipped back on you. When we are told there is a contradiction in anything, the first thing to do is make sure they are using the word correctly. But let's, by some stretch of the imagination, pretend that it is. What would be the second step? Not just to know what a contradiction is, not just to verify if the person knows what a contradiction is, but if they claim there's a contradiction in two passages of Scripture, what do we do? We go... We read it. Yeah, we go to the Scripture. <laughs> That's a good step. <laughs> in the text where the contradiction is. Now, we've glossed over briefly the problems with accusing this of being a contradiction, but we'll read the passages regardless and give them a chance to, I guess, bury themselves. The first one is in John chapter 18. Now, again, for those of you who remember, John 18 is a, the gospel account from John's perspective, and the details that he emphasizes in this book have been from the first verse to emphasize the deity of Christ, not the treachery of Judas. However, we aren't told that Judas wasn't there. We aren't told that Judas never said anything. We're only told what Jesus said. But let's start in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, the verse 17 words, uh, chapter 17 rather, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, this is John chapter 18, verse 2, who betrayed him also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. The he is in italics, so that wasn't in the original statement. They corrected it for grammar and actually ended up missing a big point. Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, that's where they ask us to stop, and for the sake of clarity, I don't think we need to read anything more to note Judas' involvement. He isn't mentioned as saying anything or kissing Jesus in this passage, but note there's not a denial of it. Judas was there. He was with the right number of people, the right kind of people, in the right location, and for the right reason. Now, if those five details, then let's go to their Matthew example. And again, make sure I'm citing their verses properly because sometimes they don't even get that right. Matthew 26 and verse 47 apparently contradicts this. Now, Matthew 26 is recording these same events, but as you would probably guess, from the disciple Matthew's perspective. Him being a tax collector, he'd be more interested in numbers and also be much more familiar with Roman 
policies, right. and as well uh, Jewish prophecies. That was his main audience. Now, uh, let's it starts at the end of the page of the previous chapter. Anyway, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Any details so far that differ from John's account? No. All right. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. And immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? They came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. So three out of the five details are given to us in this section of Scripture. We aren't told details that John includes, but do any of the details that John includes conflict with what Matthew stated? No. So an absence of information is not information of conflict, let alone absence. Make sure that when you have these conversations, you're not caught off guard, not intimidated by big words. That's all that this is trying to do. Look up the verses, give them the benefit of the doubt, and ask the person if they're sincere, because this kind of claim of a contradiction wouldn't pass muster well, I guess it would in American universities, but hopefully not in grade school. So when we're talking about these things with people, make sure that you know what words mean, you aren't intimidated by them, and if they challenge you on something, remember, the one who makes the claim has to prove his case. Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, hey, uh, one thing uh, that uh, just hit the uh, airwaves uh, right before time or the interwebs, depending on where you get your news, uh, U.S. Senate uh, candidate, former uh, All-American running back Herschel Walker, uh, has stirred up uh, controversy over remarks he made at a church on Sunday uh, saying that uh, evolution is, uh, has not been proven. And uh, one of the things that he said in order to discredit the theory of evolution is if evolution is true, why are there still apes? So as you can probably imagine, uh, the usual suspects like uh, Yahoo News and Rolling Stone and so forth are uh, bombarding uh, Herschel Walker's campaign with all that. One of the stories that I read right before airtime started out by saying that uh, the theory of evolution doesn't teach that apes should have gone extinct. It says that we are apes in a sense and that we share a common ancestor with apes, which is what the theory actually teaches. Yeah, and let me just pretend to be but, the... But let me just sum up where this thing is going, and then we can address the issue here. Uh, it then went on to uh, these articles, all of them went on uh, to then address the fact that uh, Herschel Walker has had some uh, difficulties in relationships in the past. He has admitted to uh, struggling with mental health issues in the past. Uh, in a divorce proceeding, his uh, ex-wife uh, accused him without any evidence of holding a gun to his head or to her head, uh, and uh, and so on. Uh, essentially, uh, the uh, level of uh, vitriol and personal attack is uh, is pretty intense. Uh, but it all comes back to, I guess, uh, daring to challenge, however inartfully, the sacred cow of evolutionism. Well macroevolution, yeah. in particular abiogenesis from uh, the 
primordial soup model. Now, uh, when or we're talking goo to you by way of the zoo, yeah, yeah in fancy terms. Yeah. Uh, when we're talking to people about evolution, much like with the contradiction and people dictating to us what the Bible says, when in fact it doesn't say that, we don't do ourselves any favors by jumping the gun and doing the same thing to them. I'm a strong proponent in not only meeting people where they're at in their unbelief, but at least respecting them enough to know what they believe before I ask them questions or challenge them. Right. Right. So when I'm talking to someone who believes in evolution, this is just me playing the, or the I guess, uh, Darwinist in this scenario, the response would be, if I was the atheist responding to him in a more reasonable fashion, evolution, or at least this model of it, abiogenesis macroevolution through primordial soup model, there's other models that have been put out there, does not believe that evolution is a linear process, that we don't progress like Pokemon, where when you start off as the little uh, ball of mucus, suddenly the ball of mucus is eliminated and replaced by fish, and then it's replaced by... Or, or the classic image from the books of the parade of evolutionism, where you have at the uh, left side the uh, refugee from the barrel of monkeys game, and then, and then eventually it goes up to Homo erectus, and then modern humans. Yeah, Homo sapiens. Yeah. Now, understand that when we want to make objections. We want to make sure we're actually objecting to what they believe. Otherwise, that's committing what we call a straw man fallacy. You're right. attacking something they don't believe. Right. However, in this article, in their responses thereof, they commit another fallacy called ad hominem, which is to attack the human rather than the argument that they portray. What I did was to clarify a position I don't even hold, but respect the people who hold it enough to at least know that much, that it's a branching out of one unique source, whereas in Christianity it models that every single genus started with a prime suspect introduced by God, and then from them all of the diversity and, uh, I guess, um, speciation yes. is the proper term, yeah. uh, resulted. But they claim that it's not a forest like Christianity would model, it would be a single tree. But as the tree spreads out, we don't say that the branch replaces another branch. We'd say it just came off another way. We were one of the off, I guess, adaptations of apes, but apes continue to go on their way. Dogs that would transition into cats and so forth, you get the model. That's not what they claim, but I'm just trying to be clear. Now, if someone were to come up to you and to make that sort of accusation, the best way to handle yourself, and hopefully the pastor who has given these accusations is going to respond in kind, is that if you attack me, if you don't like me, I could be the most horrible person on the planet. But if I stated something that's true, deal with that. Right. If I stated something that's false, which he did, deal with that. Right. But if, on the other hand, you're going to make the claim, okay, Evolution is false. Why do you believe that? Insert bad caricature of atheism here. Well, I haven't actually dead, uh, excuse me, dealt with anything that pertains to Darwin's theory model or the various theories that have sprung off from it. I've just made something up and attacked it. If, on the other hand, he had made a better model, a better attack, and saying, well, there's no evidence of transitional forms, you don't form conclusions on incomplete data. Or if you would say, for example, go to Answers in Genesis and say, there are numbers of scientists who, and this is, again, not an appeal to authority, but number of scientists who would affirm certain aspects of evolution, but not macroevolution. Have you looked into their research? 
I'm more willing to trust their models than the scientists who may try to be falling in line with modern trends. Right. Uh, all these things could be better approaches, but the fact that a guy took a poor approach and then was responded to with an even worse approach by attacking him personally, saying, oh, well, and again, uh, say I'm uh, having a conversation with a Muslim, and I say, I believe that Jesus is God. And he says, well, you're ugly. Good for me, but yeah, Jesus okay. could still yeah. be God, yeah. and I could still be ugly. I might have questions for why God made me ugly, but if he's still Jesus, that's irrelevant to how I look. Oh, well, you got divorced. Okay, well, you can have a conversation with my wife or husband about that later, but the point being made still stands. If, on the other hand, it's a bad point, attack the bad point. If it's a good point, deal with the good point. But don't get caught in this trap, and this is exhortation for all of you listening. If someone comes to you and says something that isn't even on topic and treats it as if that's actually settling the matter, that you don't have to basically be put on the onerous to defend yourself say, no, we're talking about this. If you have something against me, we can talk about that later. But what does that have to do with what I actually said? Bring the conversation back. Now, how would uh, people with, I guess, more level heads deal with this? Well, uh, a couple of things. First of all, if someone makes these kind of remarks, uh, the, the first thing that I would say in a, the most practical vein, if I were consulted on this, is uh, stay in your lane. Uh, if you're not really well-versed in apologetics on evolution versus creation, then it's probably not a good idea just to riff on it uh, in a public environment, especially if you're running for a high-profile position like the U.S. Senate. Uh, you are going to get attacked, and uh, you have provided some pretty good fodder for people attacking you if you misrepresent the other side, as, as you've so eloquently uh, summed up. Uh, there, Sean. But the question then I would ask is not what does Herschel Walker believe about evolutionism and is that disqualifying of evolution, but what does evolutionism teach and is it a tenable way of being able to look at reality? Uh, well, uh, one of the most important uh, issues as far as evolutionism is concerned is that uh, even going back to its beginning, you know, I usually start out with what we would call the highfalutin term cosmology, because evolutionism essentially states that everything came into being by the event known as the Big Bang. If you ask the evolutionist what started the Big Bang, what was before the Big Bang, they would say a singularity, that all matter and energy and everything we know in the universe was condensed to the point of a pin. Well, where did that come from? Well, to say it has always been is a non-starter. That's what they used to say, but uh, they can't really say that anymore. Why? Because we know that time is a reality in our universe. And the fact of the matter is, if uh, the singularity had always been, if there was an eternal pre-existence of this singularity, if you will, in a physical universe, uh, there would never be enough time for us to get to the place where we are today talking about it. Uh, it. You know, again, infinity plus one, if you will, looking backwards, is still infinity. You know, and so, you know, when you challenge them to say, all right, uh, where did the singularity come from? Uh, they will say, well, we don't know. Uh, they said there was nothing before the singularity. It just came into existence. So what the evolutionist wants me to believe 
is that nothing created everything. In other words, it just happened. And, uh, you know, I, I can uh, imagine uh, in the laws of this universe we live in right now, uh, certain things causing other things to happen. The law of cause and effect. But I can't imagine an uncaused effect. Especially one as big as everything. Yeah, I mean, to give you an illustration, uh, and I have this in, in my book, uh, Reasonable Doubts, if you want to take a look at it. Uh, I remember when my older brother and I were little kids. My parents had this uh, really wonderful chest of drawers that was about, oh, four or five feet away from their, their bed in the bedroom. Well, my brother and I discovered that by pulling the drawers out, we could climb up on top of this chest of drawers and then leap across the four-foot chasm and land on the bed. Now, we then discovered that it was a fun competition for us to see how close we could get to the ceiling, touching the ceiling before we landed on the bed. And then the laws of physics being what they were, sooner or later, wham, the Sears Best bed frame that was holding up the bed collapsed in a heap of ruins. Well, with that huge smash, suddenly filling the door was my dad who said, what did I tell you about jumping on the bed? Well, my brother and I just said, uh, we don't know how it happened, Dad. We were just standing here, and then suddenly just the, the bed collapsed. Well, my dad uh, was a, a lawyer. He was a very bright man, uh, but he was enough of a philosopher to be able to figure out that Sears Best uh, mattress bed frames do not collapse in a heap of ruins unless hyperactive little children have been jumping on them. For us to plead that it was an uncaused effect uh, didn't win the day and didn't keep us from being punished. And in the same way, when you have conversations with people, say in reverse, if we just say, well, it's a just so situation, I can play by those rules. God just is. And you don't get to disagree with that because it's my well-worked theory. Yeah. They're going to laugh you out of the room, call you bigoted and intolerant and irrational and every other thing yeah. you can think of. So, you know, if the foundation stone of evolutionism is an absurdity, that the entire universe is an uncaused effect. Or at least something that you can't prove with the very science you claim to espouse. You know, even uh, a uh, secular philosopher like Aristotle looked at an unmoved mover as the basis of all reality. And he was a pagan. So, you know, when someone starts in on this, I just say, well, let's just go to the foundation of what you say you believe. Uh, you're asking me to believe something that is absurd. So, you know, that, that's, I think, a, a good place to start. Uh, as far as, uh, you know, uh, irreducible complexity, uh, I think that's another really good argument against evolutionism. Uh, I think uh, the idea that uh, we are not in this universe seeing things becoming more ordered and more complex, but rather less ordered and less complex, also argues against the idea of evolutionism. Evolutionism was a way of trying to explain the universe without God. And uh, the other thing that, that I think is really helpful in these conversations is if you can get the person who's arguing for evolutionism to set aside the myth of the white lab coat and say, well, this has been proven scientifically. No, it has not been proven scientifically. Why do we say that? Because evolutionism, say Big Bang cosmology or common ancestry of man and apes, they will say, well, this is something that has happened in the past. We use evidence we have in the present to try to extrapolate what happened in the past. 
But the minute you say that, what you're saying is, I am using a philosophical point of view to examine the evidence I see in the here and now and try to figure out what happened in the past. The one thing the evolutionists and uh, you and I, Sean, would agree is that we weren't there to see whether the uh, common ancestor, so to speak, of apes and humans was really that. Um, we weren't around there. It is not operational science. Operational science is things that can be proved by the scientific method, by putting forth a, a theory, a thesis, and then uh, setting up uh, certain ways where that the thesis or theory can be uh, either verified or falsified in a lab. We can do that and examine things in the here and now. And the scientific method, which, by the way, was developed by people with a Christian worldview in the Enlightenment, uh, they looked at God as a purposeful creator. They assumed that the universe he made would be purposeful and that uh, we could understand what God had done by looking at things and seeing them and verifying them and so forth. Uh, when we take a look at things scientifically, we can uh, use the scientific method to do a lot of things. Uh, it can send a satellite into space. It can make a breath spray that lets you kiss a little longer. But it cannot tell you what happened in the past. We are not there to scientifically verify what happened there. It is philosophical speculation, not scientific discovery that causes these, this idea of evolutionism to be so popular. People say, well, but, uh, but don't most intelligent people believe in evolution? What would you say to that one? Well, it's the same issue of, well, my pastor said it, therefore it's true. You can say that smart people believe something and smart people are still capable of being wrong. The question is whether these smart people are in line with reality, which brings us back to the first question. Is it rational or absurd to say nothing made everything? Right. So, you know, if someone comes, you know, and you can go down all the rabbit trails you want about, uh, you know, again, falsified ape men and, and so on, and they will say, well, doesn't uh, uh, bacteria or uh, resistance of certain bacteria to antibiotics prove evolution? No, they can model after a certain point with intelligent design and uh, circumstances that would force them into this kind of adaptation, behave as if they were viruses reproductively, but they have never transitioned from bacteria to virus in composition, only behavior. Well, I'm talking about like a bacteria that develops uh, resistance to an antibiotic. Well, Still bacteria. Well, one, one of the, one of the reasons that they're able to do that is not because they become something else. It's because the genetic endowment they already have, like a deck of cards, has been shuffled in such a way that it gives them an advantage. And if certain uh, bacteria have an advantage against a certain antibiotic in a certain environment, they're going to do well, they're going to reproduce, and you're going to get like more of those bacteria. But if you take those same bacteria and you take them out of that environment and put them in another environment, uh, like, say, for instance, taking bacteria in hospitals, putting them out in the wild, they don't do so well. Why? Because they've lost the ability to fight off the things the bacteria in the wild have developed. But they all have that same uh, deck of cards, if you will. It just gets shuffled differently, and sometimes cards are, are, are lost in the shuffling and so on. That's all we're saying in the midst of all of this. But for someone to say that evolution is a fact... Uh, is not true scientifically. It cannot be verified by science. It is only something that uh, is, is speculative in nature. And uh, I think as long as people say, well, yeah, this is my worldview, this is my philosophy, uh, well, then fine. 
But to say that this has been a proven fact or that anyone like a Herschel Walker is an absolute imbecile because he questions it, I question the analogy that Herschel Walker used to try to uh, take down evolutionism. But, uh, you know, one of the things I think uh, you were uh, saying earlier in the week is that one of the best ways to learn how to defend your faith has been in four or five situations where you go down in flames when a skeptic is attacking your faith. And yeah, so, sooner or later, kind of like that bacteria in the hospital, you learn to adapt. Yeah, <laughs> it's the same kind of situation you would be in if you were exercising. You have to, well, uh, here's another uh, little bit more morbid analogy. Uh, it was once told to us by a friend that every single gold medal was hung off of what was once a broken collarbone. If you're willing to be humiliated a few times, you'll eventually get to the place where you're motivated to study and not let that happen again. But most people aren't willing to go that far. Most people want to skip the ache, but they still want the gains, so to speak. Yeah. If we're asking the questions, we should also believe there are answers. If, on the other hand, we just give answers without asking questions, you either end up looking foolish or uninformed at best. Yeah, and you know the, the other thing I would add to this is if you get into one of these conversations about it, as we always exhort you to do, always bring the conversation back to the person of Jesus Christ, because they will make statements like, well, great scientists believe this, and very intelligent people believe this, and I heard Carl Sagan say this in Cosmos, so it must be true, or Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, in the reboot of Cosmos, so it must be true. And, and I go, well, yeah, I, I would imagine you have great confidence in those individuals and those thinkers, but the reason that I take the worldview that I do is because no less an individual than Jesus Christ himself spoke of Adam and Eve as real people. He spoke of the book of Genesis as being historical and not uh, something that was uh, a fantasy or myth. He also talked about uh, the creation of man and woman being from the beginning of creation, not from the end of creation in Mark chapter 10. So Jesus took a very different point of view on this subject uh, quoted from the book of Genesis, including the creation of man as being factual and binding for those of us who are living uh, centuries beyond all of this. And he verified, in my mind, his claims to be taken seriously by rising from the dead in a moment of history. No disrespect intended, but Carl Sagan is a moldering in the grave. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So if you can make that the final issue, I think you're going to be all right. Uh, one other thing I wanted to add before we move on, shout out uh, to Debbie and Mike Coyle, who are regular listeners of ours. They are joining us on vacation on the island of St. Croix. I spent uh, summer there as a short-term missionary, so uh, right. uh, say hi to all the Crusians out there, as they like to be called. All right. Uh, good question from Yari, who wants to know, in Ecclesiastes 1.9, is it speaking about science, philosophy, or something else? Well, when... Ever we're asked a question about a passage specifically in one of the poems of the Old Testament, we want to make sure that when someone says, in this chapter and this verse, and what follows from the verse isn't one, we want to first start there because that might actually set the tone going forward. This is the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, before we move on, what does that word mean? Because he seems to like it. Uh, emptiness. It literally means breath, uh, something that uh, is uh, completely insubstantial. All right. 
So verse 3 says, What profit has a man from all his labor which he toils under the sun? So what was the first topic he brings up describing the emptiness of life? It's profit from labor, the right. work of your life. Uh, one generation passes away, and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. So his first point in observation is people are coming and going, but the earth's still here. It all seems to amount to what? Vanity. It's right. not meaningless. The sun also rises. The sun also goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind's toward the south, turns towards the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. So he, after immediately talking about people living, people dying, the earth still staying the same, he continues on the point, not of the earth, but of the same. The wind blows, the sun rises and sets, everything continues as it always has. Now, is this a scientific observation? No more than a first grader could grasp. It's just making the point in the context of, again, what? Poetry, that things continue the way they always have. Yeah. He builds on this with a third point. All things are full of labor. Notice this ties into his first point. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Now, right before we get to that passage, what were the three illustrations he's done? Labor amounts to nothing because right. the people who work it eventually are going to, um, just like they began to live, they began to die, but the world continues to move on. But they keep working. Yep. yep. Now, the second illustration was the continual work the earth seems to be producing. The sun keeps going and coming and coming and going. It continues with the rivers. Water seems to pour down from the sky, but it goes back to the ocean, just like with the people. The earth keeps moving. doesn't really seem to amount to much because it's all going to end up in the same place anyway. Right. By the way, if this seems kind of cynical and jaded, it's because it is. Because uh, Solomon at this point in his life was pretty cynical and jaded, but go on. <laughs> yeah, I'm not uh, like giving Freudian slips reading my own despair into the text here. That's actually his point. And then the final one was, as you stated, the uh, works of labor cannot be expressed eyes and ears are not satisfied with hearing or seeing. Now, if this is describing scientific pursuit, it's with the intention of describing it as what? Empty. Why? Verse 9, that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. So with three illustrations, what has Solomon done in this poetic introduction to his book describing vanity, or the vanity of life in particular? It's all cyclical. Whatever goes around comes around. People the are born. People the environment, it's cyclical. It's always been that way. People build kingdoms, and the kingdoms fall apart. People work, people learn, and then they forget, and then they die. It's all empty. It's a cycle, right? So that's the point of this, Yari. It's not making, and you'll run into people who will make these assertions. Uh, see, it says that the earth is forever. It's a steady state theory. Ecclesiastes 1.4 says the earth abides forever, but we know the earth was created, the Bible's in error. Well, A, that's a poetic observation. B, that's the end of a verse. Yeah. <laughs> Might uh, want to know what tone he's been setting it up for. And C, when we're talking about this expression, notice the continual themes. If we're talking about science or philosophy in the context of poetry, again, that's allowed. But what is the idea uh, behind the 
philos, if you will. It's trying to express the point right. that everything's continuing and it's not going anywhere. There's no such thing as progress in humanity. It's just maintenance. Right. So if, and this is what the book ultimately culminates into, if the goal of life is to build us beyond the final frontier, for us to discover something new and then all our problems will be solved, the whole book's point is, look, kid, I've learned everything <laughs> yeah. that this generation could possibly have to offer. And I don't think even if you put it in a cell phone, it's not going to change much because no matter how much knowledge you get, people don't care about it anymore. Yeah. If you, no matter how much strength you get, you're going to get old. Yeah. No matter how big you build your building, entropy, natural disasters, sabotage, war, it's all vanity so make sure that when we're reading poetry we don't start in verse nine we start in verse one yeah it reminds me of uh, the uh, words of that eminent uh, philosopher stephen wright wherever you go there you are uh what solomon is saying is yeah you know you can try to do a lot of wonderful things but you've still got people people haven't changed yeah fallen nature hasn't changed the cursed creation that we live in hasn't changed you can gussy it up you can build more clever shelters to keep the environment from doing its thing on you. Uh, but uh, ultimately, you're still dealing with human beings. And no matter uh, how fast you're able to travel, no matter how uh, doctors are able to patch things up better than they used to in the past, no matter how uh, many things we can shoot into the atmosphere around the Earth, sooner or later, human beings are going to face the fact that they are not permanent that death is ruling and reigning and all that. And because of that, that's why Solomon said it's all vain and empty. Fortunately, at the end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon kind of comes to his senses and says, um, you know, here's the end of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for such is the entire duty of man. Yeah, the for, only progress we'll make isn't on this earth. It's where we go beyond this earth. That's exactly. So that, that's what's, what's going on here. Hey, interesting uh, question from Mac, and it is, it's a question that we get along uh, get here uh, quite a bit. Uh, a couple of interesting questions. First of all, uh, Mac wanted to know, uh, why is it, if the Bible is true, do so many uh, believers who have the same Bible have disagreements about it? And examining that a little further, I think we can take it apart and see if there's not some bad assumptions there. Uh, first of all, we need to clarify believers. Okay, they are doing the act of believing, but what is it they believe? If that doesn't include the Bible, then they're not Christians. But if, on the other hand, it's the handling of the Bible, that leads us to the second question. What about the Bible don't they believe? You gave the example, Mike, of people saying that it was written by so many people. How many times was it rewritten? Who wrote it? And so forth. Well, that's a good question, but it seems to be not phrased in the form of one. Uh, we clarify often on the program the difference between a question and a doubt. A question is looking for an answer. A doubt doesn't think there is yeah, one. Yeah, a doubt asserts there is no answer. So no. if we're asking the question, how many times has the Bible been rewritten? Well, I mean, as many times as it took to make sure that the last copy wasn't falling apart, but that's usually not what they mean. Well, it'd be like saying, how many times has the New King James Bible been printed? Yeah, if what you mean by rewritten is they made copies of it, we can give pretty good answers. But if, on the other hand, what you mean is changed, altered, edited, that's another matter entirely. Now, if you make the claim the Bible has been rewritten in the sense that 
it's been edited or doctrines have been removed or added based on political movements and so forth. We're going full Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code here, right? Right. That's a claim. And the person who makes the claim has to prove it. Right. So what proof is there that the based on political expiation, I guess would be the word, uh, expediency would yeah. probably be better, yeah. um, they introduced, added, or removed things from the Bible? Well, there are certain manuscripts where we do see that there were interpolations that went on in uh, the uh, transmission of the Bible. Some believe that some of them even crept into the text itself. In 1 John chapter 5, for instance, uh, there is a, a, a section of Scripture that uh, basically states the doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, the, the amount of manuscripts that actually have that particular passage in them are very, very small compared to the others, so much so that it stands out like a sore thumb. Uh, we do not claim that every uh, manuscript uh, that we have of the Bible, that we base our modern Bibles on, is going to be identical. That sounds almost like the Muslim claim that the Quran hasn't been changed at all, uh, letter to letter, claims. and uh, you know the the, uh, the that it's just absolutely pristine and so forth. Uh, if that's your standard of proof, you're going to be frustrated. But here are the facts on the ground. What we base our New Testament on, for instance, is not just one or two manuscripts. If so, we'd be in trouble because you know how could you know if uh, say some corrupting cleric or mad monk jumped in and put their own two cents worth in there. But what we have are over 5,800 copies of the New Testament in the original language, Greek. We have over 18,000 examples of versions, that is, translations of the Greek into other languages from around the time of Christ. We have also have over 86,000 individual verse quotations from early church officials to one another. So if we take uh, all of that data and compare and contrast it, we discover something that the amount of the New Testament that is still held as being in doubt, like the one we mentioned in 1 John chapter 5, uh, there are some that will question uh, John chapter 8, the account of Jesus and the woman in adultery as being part of the Gospel of John. Some say it was probably part of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, most scholars don't believe it was completely spurious or added later. They're just questioning which manuscript it belongs to. And no, uh, even if we're cautious, in fact, overcautious. The end of the Gospel of Mark, uh, there are those who will say that this might have been added later on. So if we accept that, and we could make a claim for each and every one of these disputed passages that it's not as open and shut as it's made to be seen, but if we were going to take every part of the New Testament that is still held as being in doubt as being true to the original and print it up on a piece of paper. Uh, we would come up with less than one half of one page of text and no, and this is the key thing, what? No major doctrine of Christianity would leave as a result of the removal of those passages. Or, or even be called into question. No less a skeptic than Bart Ehrman himself, who, who wrote Misquoting Jesus and his peers on Oprah and all these other uh, Nat Geo things to, to try to discredit the message of the Bible. Even he has to admit that in the appendix of his book. Yeah. So... I guess what we're trying to say there, Mac, is uh, as far as uh, has the Bible been changed, no, it really hasn't. And you base and, that and, not off your faith, but the evidence. Yeah, on the facts on the ground. Now, the other question is this. Okay, if you have all these people believe in the Bible, why are there so many different opinions about biblical subjects? 
you know, that's another, uh, I, the first book I wrote for Thomas Nelson Publishers was called Myths the World Taught Me. And this, I think, is a great myth that goes around, that Christians can't agree on anything. You know, you get uh, three, two Christians in a room, you're going to have 30 different opinions on every subject. The fact of the matter is, the vast majority of Christians agree on the vast majority of essential issues regarding the Christian faith. Is that a fair statement to say? In regards to the manuscript evidence? or No, I'm just saying as far as the major doctrines of Christianity. Is there dispute among Christians as to whether Jesus was God or whether the Bible teaches that God is triune in nature, or whether the, the Bible is the inspired inerrant word of God or, or that we're saved by grace through faith? Well, that's really the crux of the issue, because if they do deny those things, they're not believers in what is required to be believed in to be a Christian. If on the Mac, uh, Mormons, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, they would deny one or all of those things. Yeah, and, that the, would and, be and these, are, these are aberrant groups. But as far as Christians are concerned, uh, you know, it just always reminds me of the famous statement of Mark Twain. It ain't those parts of the Bible that I don't understand that disturb me. It's those parts of the Bible that I do understand that disturb me. The vast majority of believers in Christ are in lockstep agreement about these major doctrines of Christianity. Why? Because the Bible's very clear uh, about them. Uh, as far as some of these other issues that believers get into, say uh, predestination versus free will, or eschatological end times the kind of issues like is there a rapture or what's the timing of the rapture uh, these sort of things uh, you know baptism should it be by immersion or sprinkling these sort of issues right sincere believers can disagree on without crossing the line and not being believers anymore uh, so none of these things are essentials I mean, they're important, and we should have our convictions on them. But as far as essentials, as far as being a part of the family of God, no. Um, the vast, and, you know, I, I used to be under the, the assumption that uh, people uh, just looked at the Bible like an inkblot test and that you could look in the Bible and see anything you wanted in it. But the fact of the matter is, if you approach the Bible in a literal, that is, taking into account the kind of literature you're reading— Poetry, history, prophecy, etc. Yeah, literal, grammatical. In other words, we look at the language it was written in and use the rules of that grammar to determine what the original writer intended to say. Historical, that is, we don't lift it out of its historical context, but see it when it happened in history. If you look at the Bible from a literal, grammatical, and historical con context, and you allow the Bible, like any other piece of literature, to interpret itself. In other words, we give the writer the benefit of the doubt that he is attempting to communicate in this particular way. Uh, we don't uh, insist that poetry be interpreted in a, uh, in a uh, wooden sense. We allow for figurative language, these sort of things. The overall message of the Bible is really easy to understand. It's, it's not difficult. What's difficult is it's sort of an affront to us as human beings. We don't tend to like it. And so building, we tend to duck and cover. Yeah, and building on that point, got a question from Tamara who wants to know. Uh, it's an area of concern for her because two people may translate 
the same passage differently. Now, you use the word translate, but I've seriously cautioned against that because a translation isn't interpretation. Those are two different animals. What is the difference? Well, a, a translation is taking the original language and using English equivalents as much as we can to relate what the original had to say. That's what translation is. Uh, and, and uh, you know, again, uh, tomorrow we've gotten into conversations about, uh, you know, what is a good translation? There's two main schools of thought. Uh, one is a word-for-word -word translation, which attempts to take the message in the original language and make it into the equivalent in our language that we speak and, and uh, try to stay as close to the original as we can. Then there's what's called dynamic equivalence, which is more of a thought-for-thought translation. They aren't so interested in keeping word-for-word -word harmony with the original text as much as communicating what the original intent was. Well, we tend to recommend word-for-word -word translations because as soon as you get into thought-for-thought, -thought, you get into the, you know... Uh, you're not uh, reading translations, you're reading interpretations. Yeah, you know, it's like the old, uh, the Way Living Bible. That was one of the first Bibles I ever read as a new believer. And uh, over time, I started looking in the little margin notes and and there were all these little footnotes, and it kept saying implied, implied, implied. Well, that meant that what I was reading wasn't what the original really said. It's what Kenneth Taylor, the guy who put together the Living Bible, thought the original had to say. And unless you're in a cult, the people who do these kinds of interpretations are careful to point that out. Right. If, on the other hand, you run into a translator two people aren't going to look at the Greek word chi and say, I think that means and, and the other person thinks, I think that means orange. Yeah. No, there, exactly. are, there are language differences. Yeah, and a great example of the difference between an interpretation and a uh, translation, if you will, if I can even be generous enough on that, is uh, something that the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, have to do with the, what they call their New World Translation, which they consider to be the most accurate translation of the Bible that you could ever uh, have. And, Despite and, none of their translators being willing to be accountable for their decisions. Yeah, and uh, you ask them, well, who was on your translation team? They said, well, they're so humble, they didn't want their names associated with it. Well, that's, that's very convenient. But here's where you see the difference between a uh, translation and an interpretation and how dangerous it can be if you get the two lanyards crossed, so to speak. Uh, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, uh, we read this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Well, in that short passage of Scripture, Tamara, in order to take this passage and make it fit into the Watchtower Tract and Bible Society's doctrine that Jesus is not God, that Jesus was a created being, that he is the first of all creation, that he wasn't eternal. They have to insert the word other no less than five times into this text to make it fit. In other words, they would say, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all other things were created that are in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible. All other things were created through him and for him. And he is before all other things, and in him all other things consist. Now, the word other 
is not there in the original language. It is inserted into the text, billed as a translation, when in reality it is an interpretation based upon a false doctrine. So we have to be very careful when we use those terms, translation and interpretation. So let us know if that helps you out. Yeah. Um, question from Mike on our Facebook page uh, who wants to know, are the things in Revelation 9 actually seen by the people going through the tribulation or are they unseen and only the result from these things happening seen? Um, he knows that John was in the spirit, so obviously he could like see what was going on behind the veil. I recognize and respect that interpretation of those passages, uh, Mike, and again, I don't condemn anyone who would do it. I just respectfully disagree. The reason for that is because, remember the chapters and verses, and this is uh, something we can stumble into from time to time, uh, thinking that, okay, we're in chapter 9 now. That's different from how I should handle chapter 8, even though categorically we're still in this, the trumpet zone, if yeah, you will. Yeah. There's yeah. no transition to, like in chapter 10, things going back to the heavenly scene with John's perspective as opposed to referencing the earth, and on it goes. Uh, but uh, when we go from Revelation chapter 8 to Revelation chapter 9, obviously there's a pause at verse 13 that says what's going to happen next is going to be scary. Yeah. Chapter 9 begins with this description of the locust, the smoke coming out of the abyss, and so forth. Obviously, I would acknowledge there are aspects of this that will be unseen, the star falling from heaven and the abyss, to name two. Yeah. But when they would make the jump to say, so then the locusts, they won't be seen, there will just be people who are suffering for some reason, and the cause is actually demonic. It's a result of this plague and the smoke. Well, okay, I see how you approach that text, but let's be consistent and just note my hermeneutic, my interpretation method in chapter 8. Would it be weird of me to say, for example, in the second trumpet judgment, uh, this is verse 8, then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, if I were to take that unseen phenomena overlapping, I am now the authority that has to pick and choose what is unseen and what is seen when everything that is shown to John seems like it would appropriately apply in actual time. What do I mean? Well, the ocean turning to blood, is that symbolic or is that literal? Well, given the handling of the Exodus and the Nile literally turned to blood and people had to literally look to digging wells in order to drink <laughs> running water for a time, that was a literal event. I then say, oh, well, uh, what about the thing being thrown? Like, is there going to be some uh, bodybuilder, uh, you know, appearing in the cosmos and chucking a giant rock at the earth? No, I would note that the appearance of being thrown means it's moving really fast. I think that interpretation method is fair. When it notes a third of living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed, I'd associate that with the fact that the water they were living in was now bloody. But also noting as well, why were the ships destroyed? Are they just going to pop yeah. <laughs> for no reason yeah. Yeah. as a result of the water turning to blood or, or what's going on here? Now, I think that because of the literal fallout of a meteorite strike, that's how I'd interpret the passage, the ripples and waves that result from it would not only damage the sea life, and the fallout of it would have a supernatural aspect with literal implications, but also noting, and this is the overall answer to your question, Mike, if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you believe in nonsense. Now, the plain sense can be scary, 
but that's not nonsensical. Right. If I say there's a supernatural entity appearing to people, tormenting people, stinging people, right. like a scorpion, and right. the text mentions that three times, that right. this is going to torment men for five months, right. I would say that's freaky, but I don't put it past God to introduce new factors in a literal sense, just like I would with the fire hailstones, just like I would with the... Um, what is it? The meteorite or yeah, the Revelation poison. six, the the uh, meteor bombardment of the earth. Yeah, the people on site uh, aren't going. What's what's uh, rearranging the landscape here? Yeah, they seem to know what's going on. Yeah, and he broadens this out to the whole tribulation period again, Mike. It would be on a case by case basis. The key is consistency. If I'm coming to a chapter or even to a verse that can be interpreted plainly, it should be. If it's not prefaced with the idea a great sign appeared in heaven, it's describing literal fallout on the earth, I would take it plainly. But that's uh, how I would approach the text. And I respect those who would take it differently, but we will see. Yeah, and uh, you know the reason we have this bias towards saying when John said, I saw, means he saw it, uh, it doesn't exclude the fact that John was having a vision, but it doesn't by the fact that he's having a vision mean that he isn't seeing things that are physical and material at the same time in the sense of having a vision. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, the word revelation literally means the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants, which must shortly take place. Now notice the point is that God gave him this revelation to do what? To show his servants. Well, anything that you can see is something that is shown, right? I think the Beatles said something about that. Uh, in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all the things that he saw. So what John is saying here was, yeah, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and then I saw the Lord. He wasn't saying it's just some dream. It was, wasn't just because he got some bad takeout pizza uh, while he was, uh, you know, there on Patmos. He saw these things. And, you know, when we take a look at visions uh, in the Word of God, visions don't necessarily mean you're in a dream state. A vision means that you're aware of what's going on, you're awake, but God gives you supernatural insight. God bless you. We'll see you all again next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.